Hello, friends. He really wanted to do that. Nailed it. Eat that (laughs) stuff. Take it. Welcome to another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. Uh, Today, uh, it's me and co-hosting is uh, Jordan Shallow, uh, because I'm still stuck in Canada trying to work on uh, getting a visa to get back. But that's a a story for another time. Uh, Today, we have uh, Dr. Evan Rodriguez uh, on the podcast. Uh, He's an an anesthesiologist by specialty, focusing on microdose uh, psychedelic therapies. So his main role is in anesthesiology, doing general anesthesia and sedation for patients undergoing procedures. Uh, and the interest in alternative therapies uh, is because he saw a need to promote access to those treatments. Uh, we dive into all of that. It's actually really nice to have a clinical perspective on these types of psychedelic drugs because my exposure to it prior to this has literally just been hippie friends telling me that all drugs are medicine. And that might be true, but it also might not be true. So it's nice to uh, hear it from a doctor. Quick shout out to our sponsor, LMNT. Uh, it's a great tasting electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. LMNT is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following a keto, low carb or paleo diet. LMNT contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, with with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. If you want to check these guys out, this is something that Stephanie and I use all the time. Uh, Check them out at drinklmnt.com slash hybrid. This podcast episode is also brought to you by Beam. Beam is committed to producing high-quality, natural, innovative wellness products trusted by some of the world's top professional athletes. Beam creates products to support four main categories, balance, performance, recovery, and sleep. These products are combined of both CBD and non-CBD ingredients. By tapping into how we function biologically, CBD can work to regulate pain, mood, appetite, anxiety, and inflammation. As a Hybrid Unlimited listener, you get 15% off your order with code HYBRID in all caps. So check them out. That's BEAM and use code HYBRID in all caps for 15% off. And uh, that's it. Let's uh, sit back, relax, and enjoy another episode of Hybrid Unlimited. It's so cool working with actual professionals. <laughs> it's yeah. so rare for us on the internet. Like, yeah. I thought about one day just doing the podcast in Scrubs just to feel more legit. Yeah, it's like, I got this from my other job. Yeah, like a, like a real job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's rare. You have no idea how rare that is in our world to talk to people with real jobs. Like, he doesn't have a promo code. Zero <laughs> promo code. Could you imagine? Just yeah. use code MD at checkout for your ketamine. That's- <laughs> It, it should be that easy eventually, hopefully. How did you get into it? Like, how did you, what first sparked your interest with ketamine? Because, like, in our world, getting into weightlifting was like, I was in high school and I lifted with a wrestling coach. But it's like, I hope that's not the same story with you. It's like, I was in high school and I did ketamine with a wrestling coach. <laughs> no, I, I, I actually, my experience with ketamine is not a personal one. It's that professional one. I was training. Uh, there, it was a great drug to use as an anesthesiologist. It was a almost an ideal drug as an anesthetic, um, but there was always some negative connotation with it, and I wasn't sure why. Uh, when I asked to use it during training on patients, there was a, a lot of resistance with the other uh, anesthesiologists, and they just said, you know, patients don't want it, patients don't need it, and I wasn't sure why, and it was it was kind of the, 
wondering why there was such hesitation that sparked my interest in it. And the more I looked into it, I couldn't find a valid reason why we aren't using it more in the operating room. Uh, and that just sparked my interest in learning about the medication ketamine. And I realized that there's so many other uh, uses for it. And it's kind of a political reason why, a social political reason why it just has a bad name. It's a recreational drug. So what's they the, uh, it and, and push it aside. what's the traditional purpose? Like what was that drug made for initially? Uh, well, initially it was, it was, it was made in a lab. It was made as a, we had PCP, which is a psychedelic drug, and they wanted to get the good effects from it, the anesthetic effects, the pain effects from it, without all the negative side effects of tripping out. Um, and they did a good job with ketamine. It's a very short-acting medication that does still have some dissociative effects, which we can talk about later. It's actually beneficial. Um, but they use it as a potent anesthetic. They, they designed it specifically for the way it's used now as it's pain control. It's a dissociative, so you don't you're not aware of really what's going on for a very short period of time. So they can do an operation, and it wears off. And when the operation is done, you're kind of recovered quickly. So it was designed to do exactly what it's doing. Unfortunately, it's it was taken off as a party drug soon afterwards, because uh, you can do ketamine, you know, in raves and everything, and, and that kind of pushed it away socially as a as a legitimate medication. So at what point did you? In your training, did you start to realize that this that some of the pushback was coming from the social stigma around the spinoff uses of ketamine as like a more recreational party drug? I I mean it's it's available in all hospitals. It's actually required by the World Health Organization. It's one of the essential medications. So we had it available, um, and it would just be sitting in in the pharmacy area. So the, I realized when I use it, and I did have some coworkers that were happy to use it. Um, that we'd have such positive effects from it, and the patient care was was improved, and we can do quick cases without them having long-acted uh, narcotics and, and having long recovery time. Um, but again, I, I when we did use it, we had such good effects from it that I realized that this there's there's something to it. The other side of it is it's a generic medication, so it's pennies. It's under a dollar for one bottle, um, for one uh, dose for a patient. And that's kind of one of the other reasons socially or, or not so politically why it's not really taken off is because pharmaceutical companies cannot make money from it. It's a generic medication. Any producer can make ketamine. It's not name brand. So, so that's, that's the other. So you were introduced to it through being an anesthesiologist. But yes. now the purpose you use it is you've kind of switched to a different route, right? Like you're using it for for a completely different reason with people who have right. all sorts of different you know issues they're trying to address. Can you speak on that? Right. A bit? I, it, yeah. I, I I was always interested in, in, in other aspects of of the use of it. As an anesthesiologist, we kind of overlap a lot with pain management, and that's kind of where I it started to branch off. Um, pain management doctors can go from two routes: anesthesiology or uh, rehab medicine, and they both end up as pain management doctors. Um, and ketamine is, is amazing for pain management. So I started looking into that as an anesthesiologist. We, we do a lot of pain management. Um, and I realized that a lot of that overlaps. Chronic pain does overlap with a lot of other psychiatric issues, depression, PTSD. It, it, it's different flavors of the same uh, issue that needs to be treated. And it's just kind of misfiring of neurons and brain cells. So as I was using it for pain management, I wanted to look into as much research as possible what was what studies were being done on it, and depression, anxiety, and PTSD kept popping up, and that's kind of how it branched off. Um, 
and psychiatry is a great specialty, um, but they're not comfortable managing uh, the medication side of it. They can write pharmaceutical, they can write prescriptions for pharmaceutical pills, but actual infusions and, and anesthetic medications, most of them are not comfortable doing. So there had to be some kind of uh, collegial, uh, I guess, relationship between the psychiatrists that wanted to use it for their patients and anesthesiologists who wanted to be the ones to administer it to the patients. So I kind of just kept delving into that and looking at that. So what is the common practice around using it outside of a surgical setting? Is there a paradigm set for, okay, we're not going to use this as an anesthetic for a procedure. We're now going to use it post-operative for pain management or in like a, a clinical setting from a, a more psychiatric standpoint for that dissociation property in maybe diving into, you know, um, some deeper mental health issues, which kind of seems to be the route that these drugs are headed. Yeah, I, it's been going on. The studies specifically for depression, I think, have been going on for over 20 years. Uh, and that's been led by psychologists, psychiatrists and, and a few anesthesiologists. Um, so that's been going on. They've been trying to make protocols of it in, outside of the operative setting and just uh, in a clinic setting. And again, pain management was kind of going along the side of it. They have outpatient pain management clinics, and they've been doing infusions of it outpatients because it is a very short-acting medication. So outside the operating room, we've been using microdosing, which is the kind of the buzzword these days, but low-dose infusions, um, and it's been progressing from there. It's, it's a popularity thing um, that is starting to grow. Actually, I've been looking into this for six or seven years, and when I first started, nobody wanted to touch it. Now there are ketamine clinics popping up everywhere, um, which is a good thing. Um, so it's kind of a social thing. Where do you open up a ketamine clinic? What neighborhood is going to allow that? What, what towns, cities don't really care? Because it's the smaller towns where, where there's not much access to other alternatives. Who's going to allow that? Because there's a lot of pushback to open up these types of clinics. But, um, but they, they are available. What does a treatment look like? Like, I, I'm a patient. I'm coming in for outpatient ketamine infusion. Like, yeah. I walk in. In Canada, I lay down a health card. In America, I lay down a credit card. What right. is the actual procedure look like? Is it cognitive behavioral therapy overlapped with infusion of drugs? Is it just, you know, putting it in an infusion and you sit with your own thoughts? Like, what is the actual procedure? Right. Well, I mean, that's that's a perfect question because it took us, I guess, a lot of years to figure out that as an option. It used to be just a very cold clinic. You go in, you get your infusion, you go out and you know, hopefully you get some recovery from it in terms of the psychiatric side of it. Now, the big push is to have a therapy session with whatever therapist is there, or if you have your own therapist, um, to, to work in concert with having an infusion either before, during, or after a therapy session, you get the best results. Um, so every location is different with what they're willing to offer. Um, the, the newest ones do offer either you set it up with your own psychiatrist or psychologist to have a session that day, or they have in-house sessions. So you go in with the infusion, uh, depending on which location you sit, relax, listen to music, read a book, and then you have a therapy session after, or you have the IV uh, hooked up to you infusing while you're having a therapy session. So you're laying back, relaxed on a recliner and, and talking things out. There are different experiences. There, there's no standard for that, which is a good thing because everybody is different. Um, but that is kind of the newest way. And we, they, found that that has the best results. It's not just about the physical experience of getting this dissociation. You really have to work out the problems I think, that are affecting you. I think that's such an important point because 
<clears throat> I have some, I have some hippie friends, you know, in my circle, and if you speak to them, a, a lot of times they'll talk about you know hallucinogenic drugs like mushrooms or LSD as like this this like sort of thing that provides you this grand awakening or enlightenment or whatever, but they talk about it in such a magical way <clears throat> that it makes you it makes me at least think like why aren't you, if this is the solution to all of these problems why aren't all of your relationships perfect why aren't you a billionaire you know like what 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 if it has such a profound effect like how come i see these people continuing to struggle with the same things time after time while they bury themselves in in these drugs and 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 what makes them feel like while seemingly from the outside nothing is changing I have no experience right. with ketamine, so I don't know. But seemingly from the outside, nothing is changing. But they feel like so much has changed, and they're telling everyone around them, you know, so much has changed. They're trying to get everybody to do it. It's like this sort of weird phenomenon. Yeah, uh, I mean, the, there are different levels of, of treatment and, and effect from it, and you get that instant effect. Ketamine kicks in in a few seconds if it's through the IV, and it lasts for a couple hours. You get this euphoria, and you, it's not, you know, at the dose, you're not tripping, but you get this euphoria, you feel great. Um, but that wears off. The real work has to be done with you. And on the inside, your actions, your intentions, which is a big thing, you really have to change your outlook at life. This this helps you reset and kind of start over with what, what direction you want to go in. Um, but it, it's not going to change you unless you're, you're willing to work on it with the actual psychological yeah. aspect of that, it. When I, I think that that's a really good point because I think maybe what some of these uh, drugs can do is help you have those realizations, like you said. But it's still up to you to do the work, and and once you've acknowledged that there's an issue, actually do it outside of the treatment, right? I think a, maybe right. a lot of people get stuck in this sort of like loop of feeling good about having a realization, and it's enough to sort of just keep them still. They're like, oh, I've realized the problem, and then you know that provides them time of like not feeling guilty or, or something. And then after a certain period of time, they feel guilty again, and they'll have another session and do that, you know? And it's just this weird loop, right. like on repeat. So it's, it's good to hear that you have a plan for people. Like, I think the, the, the therapy part of it is, has got to be super important. Um, right. Otherwise you can just get stuck in that weird feedback yeah. loop. But I think like, obviously by the sounds of it, the micro dose isn't micro enough to be, um, blinded to the patient right like you can never do a double blind study with this because right. like someone's gonna be like okay i know i know this iv has the saline solution and i know this iv has the ketamine right, right? so the micro yeah. dose is still uh active enough or bioactive enough that the person's going to be like okay like here we go i guess right. my my question is i mean because i i grew up in a town that's very much riddled with prescription pain, medication, abuse, right? So like fentanyl, Oxycontin, Percocets, like these are, these are, these are street drugs. Like, and the overprescription, I scratched my cornea when I was 19 and they handed me a bottle of 45 Percocets. And like, <laughs> I had my sh shit together relative to those around me, but like, this is, this bottle's worth a couple hundred dollars if I just go out in the street or it's worth my life if someone knows I have it and they want it, I don't want to give it to them. Right. So I'm always like and then having friends in, in, in similar circles that have these these cyclical realizations with hallucinogenic drugs. And it's I, I compare it back to kind of my world and with performance enhancing drugs where it's like in a sports setting. 
I know kids that will walk in the gym the first day and start bagging gear. It's just steroids without ever working out and they get great results, but then the training drops or the gear stops and the training stops. Whereas like I know guys that have lifted for a decade and then they start running gear. I kind of look at this with like from a cognitive standpoint with these types of drugs. It's like, I guess to circle back to my question, it's what prerequisite of maybe like seeing a psychiatrist, seeing a psychologist, seeing a cognitive behavioral therapist, or is it, you know, cause I'm trying to parse out where the benefits of ketamine being like a dissociative, um, uh, like the mechanism of it being dissociative, being beneficial to an, as an adjunct to these other, like doing the actual work as it were, um, versus like, you know, do you have to do 12 therapy sessions without drugs before the ketamine? Like what is, what is the research or what is like the boots on the ground feeling of like, okay, no, we're not just going to give you drugs and a, and a psychiatrist or a psychologist or a cognitive behavioral therapist. Um, you have to do that stuff first. Like how, how do you start to intertwine and really uh, pre-qualify someone for ketamine being uh, like a, like a drug that could help along this, this like path of recovery? Yeah, I, I, that's also a great question. So there's no standard, which is one of the problems. This is a relatively new, uh, I guess, field. It's very slow growing, but now it's beginning to take off. There is no standard, um, but I, I would say it is irresponsible just to take on a patient who walks through the door and not know their history, what's going on with them. Uh, right now, it is reserved uh, for treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant, so they have to try other uh, mainstream treatments first. Um, and fail those in order to qualify. Um, but that's a judgment call. There are, I'm sure there are some clinics available that you walk in and you have a credit card and they'll say you're good enough, you know, we'll hook you up. Um, but to be responsible, yeah, you have to, I think you have to establish a background on the patient, make sure that they are seeing somebody. It's also irresponsible, I would think, to give somebody a medication that is gonna affect their psychiatric well-being one way or another without knowing that they have support, without, the, without knowing if they have a a therapist of some sort and they have good support when they walk out that door. Um, so that would be a requirement in my opinion. Um, unfortunately, there is no standard requirement. But yeah, they, they, I think they would have to be diagnosed ahead of time. I wouldn't feel comfortable as a non-psychiatrist therapist to be the one to diagnose somebody with severe depression and treatment-resistant depression. So, so I think they have to have, yeah. Are, are, so are psychiatrists and therapists referring uh, patients to you? Is that how the process works? Uh, yeah, that that should be the ongoing part. There are psychiatrists that kind of do it on their own. They do the infusions. They set up somebody to do it, but they're the ones that manage it completely. Um, so yeah, that would be the the goal. Ultimate goal is to have kind of a network of, of referrals, and they there should be active participant in it because you do want those therapy sessions during the ongoing infusions, whether in real time during the same day or just over the series of infusions, you want them to, to work on the actual progress of the patient. Um, and just to go back to the dissociative effect, that is kind of the more uh, popular known effect of the ketamine, but at the doses that we're giving, they should be wide awake, able to read a book. They just feel a mild euphoria. They shouldn't be in the K-hole or zonked out or anything like that. Um, and we are, the research is still going on. We don't actually know what is causing the benefits of ketamine. It is the dissociative effect to one aspect because they do studies where they block that um, and the de decrease in effectiveness have, has you know, been shown so that it does help somewhat 
Um, but there is some relief of depression even when they don't dissociate. So it's it's not necessarily that. There, it's a lot of things that they're working on, uh, that the academy works on that we find is kind of a conglomerate of benefits. Uh, the other, the one thing, and I think I kind of briefly mentioned to you uh, back in FitCon, but actually the rearborization of neurons, so it regrows new dendrites. So you're actually repairing some brain damage that's caused by uh, chronic illnesses like chronic depression, PTSD, anxiety. So there actually are physical changes in the brain that have been shown um, from the actual stimulation of the, the receptors from the ketamine. So that kind of is a long-term effect. And like I mentioned before, this, this medication wears off in, in four to six hours, usually even a lot less uh, than that. But the effect of the ketamine lasts for days to weeks. And if you do a, a session, a, a series of infusions, which usually is about three weeks, uh, so two infusions a week for three weeks, some people do see effects for up to six months afterwards. So it's not the actual effect of the ketamine, but it's the changes that occur uh, physically in the brain from it. But on the backs of that, understanding a little bit deeper about the neurophysiology and like to a certain degree, the biochemistry with that, is there a, a neurophysiological case to be made for potential dependency? Um, well, no. It's, so that's, that is a good question. It hasn't been shown. Ketamine has not been shown to be a, an addictive drug by any means. Um, again, the euphoric effects, the dissociate effects, all of those, even the pain control effects, uh, the acute ones wear off within a couple of hours. So there's no uh, withdrawal effect. So that's kind of part of the definition of an addiction or dependence is there has to be some kind of withdrawal. So when you don't get it, um, you feel a negative effect. There's no withdrawal effects from ketamine at any realistic use. If you're like back in the 70s taking high dose every day, there might be an issue. Um, so their dependency has is, is not been shown, and they've been studying this for a while. It's been around for 50 plus years. Um, but like I said before, any dissociation, any mental vacation can be addictive, even if it's meditation or, or even going to the gym. So you, you're not addicted physically to the compound, but if you have a really bad life, you're not happy with it, any removal of that uh, might feel like something that you're addicted to. So that's why you have to work on yourself. And it's like going on any vacation away from a job you don't like. You can go away, but once you go back to that job, you're going to be unhappy. You have to change the work in between those little mini vacations. So Academy does have changes in the brain, um, but they haven't been shown to be addictive. It's, it's kind of just the, the vacation. You, if you're not focused on the right aspect of the treatment, you might have, you, you're not going to get the outcome that you want. Is there a place in treatment for putting people in the quote unquote K hole or like zonking them out? Um, medically, we haven't gotten there yet in, in the scientific aspect of it. If you want to go more to the spiritual um, aspect of it, and that may be in the future, the there, there have been, there has been very, uh, I guess, artistic and creativity uh, benefits from it, I guess, from artists and just other, even business people. This K-hole um, and the deepest level is what they call ketamine death, which is a very interesting name for something where you actually feel like you're dead. You're not, you don't die from it, but you feel like you're dead, but you're conscious and aware of feeling dead. I I can't explain it, but, you know, the, the feeling of it, I'm sure you, you have to be there to, to know what it's like. Um, but when they come back from that, they have a new outlook on life they have a new so there's they've some people have gotten benefits from that i don't think any clinic would offer that um or at least advertise offering that that's probably kind of side use um uh -huh. but um yeah i, I mean 
there's there's the medical and aspect of it and you're kind of digging yourself out of the hole of these chronic illnesses and then there's the other aspect of how can it improve my already good life and that might be something you know an adventure somebody wants to go on again i'm not advocating for that because we have to uh, go about this responsibly but that's something that the future might hold people who want to increase creativity um might want to have this unnatural experience of feeling dead what what might be the major differentiation like you know with the podcast culture seems to be what drives this is it it really picks off a particular audience but if someone were to come to you and be like okay psilocybin dmt ketamine where is it that ketamine like how does ketamine fit into this conversation? What are the what are the pros versus cons? Because like you know, I know the frog venom guys that are just like licking toads and stuff just <laughs> to find source. But it's like you're sitting here wearing scrubs in a doctor's office. But you also need to you need to have this conversation amongst a sea of people who are just left a Grateful Dead concert. You're just like fuck. How do I navigate this professionally? So what's the major difference between like these 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 drugs that are coming from both the spiritual, artistic, maybe even a, an abuse standpoint and trying to have a very clinical conversation and trying to help people that otherwise might not be able to be reached. Yeah, I, you know, the, the two that I would focus on, ketamine versus uh, psilocybin, which are the, the mushrooms, um, because those are the ones that, have, for, in my eyes, from the research, have the greatest potential to be more mainstream. Ayahuasca, DMT, peyote, all these other things are probably used safely elsewhere, but they're probably also used unsafely quite often. So I would not recommend even kind of looking at that. Uh, but psilocybin is becoming legalized in many cities and towns. It's You can't stop it because it grows everywhere. You know, after a nice rainfall in Hawaii, it's gonna pop up everywhere. So you can't stop people from getting access to it. Um, I would say the main benefit of ketamine, that the pro ketamine is it's it's, it's very easy to control the dose. It's, it's lab made. We could do it by weight, we could do it by effect, we do it under the clinical setting. It goes into the bloodstream directly, 100% of it goes, it's bioavailable if you do an IV infusion. Uh, and you can do it real time and see what the effects are and titrate the dosage, titrate the effects. It's kind of, the, it's the cold scientific kind of objective. We can ch exactly change the dose and, and get the effect we want uh, side of things. That's the benefit of it. The, the con of it is, if it's used irresponsibly, it can be dangerous. You, it's very hard to kill somebody with ketamine because, again, the worst you can really do is put them in the K-hole. It's going to wear off. But if they do have medical conditions, there are there are some reactions that can have. If they have pulmonary issues, they could have very high blood pressure in the lungs. Um, if they have hypertension, this brings their blood pressure even higher. So if somebody's very sick, they could have a stroke. They could have this. But for the normal 95% of the relatively healthy people, it's not going to have that effect at normal doses, especially not the lower dose infusions. Um, but it does have a risk of abuse, uh, like any other, it's a controlled substance. You have to have a DEA license to have access to it. Uh, and it luckily it preserves the airway, unlike narcotics and opioids, so you're not gonna stop breathing even if you take too much. But it's, you know, nothing's safe if you don't know what you're doing and, you, and you're just gonna go wild with it. So there's a con to that. Um, when it comes to psilocybin, the pro is it's dirt cheap. Literally, it grows everywhere. You can probably grow your own if you need to. Um, the con is it's probably not going to be as effective as a scientifically based infusion of ketamine. Um, the effects you probably 
you know, the, we're doing a lot of research on that now, we, but the, the research in general in the scientific community is, is seeing, you know, there's legalization, so they, they're very interested in that. They see a lot of positive effects of microdosing these mushrooms in pill form. Unfortunately, that's where the money is coming in because now these big companies are, are starting to salivate and look how they can capitalize on it. Um, but it, it might be a, a, a ongoing treatment. It doesn't actually, it shows actually a lot of similar effects on the brain chemistry as ketamine, but not as strong, not as effective. We don't know how to uh, stabilize the dose if you grow something in your backyard. You don't know exactly how much you're getting, how strong those particular mushrooms are. Um, well, sure, and there's the, and the variance it, is large yeah. too, right? <laughs> like there's all these different strains. You can have one strain that makes takes you to the moon, and you have another one right. that puts you in the corner in a fetal position sucking your thumb. <laughs> I can, I struggle yeah. medically in having like we have friends who refer to mushrooms as medicine, and it's just like, well, they're not wearing scrubs, let's say, when they're telling us this. Right. But it's like yeah. I have a hard time getting behind anything that one of the strains is called penis envy. I was like, ah, I don't know how many <laughs> yeah. med, years of med school this guy has. Fuck this, I'm not taking it. Where this does seem like everything you're saying more appealing it, from a clinical right. sense, as it's more controlled. Now, how do you? what is the prerequisite? Like, how is it that you, even as an anesthesiologist, like what are pre-op questions that you'd ask to maybe rule this in versus rule this out, uh, either in a pre-op or in like a therapeutic, uh, in a therapeutic sense? Um, well, first you go with the, you have to go with the history and physical. You want to look at the medical conditions that's going to rule them out. So if they have a seizure history, you don't want to mess around with that. If they have history of psychosis, you don't want to give any hallucinogen or anything that's associated because they might have a psychotic break. It's, it's very unlikely, but you want to decrease any bad effects. Um, and if they just have an allergy to it, you know, one of those things, bad reactions in the past. Um, so you want to rule out all the medical contraindications. Then you have to get a feel from them and talk to them. And like I said, you, you want them to make sure, make sure that they have a good foundation in terms of therapy that they're already seeing, that they've sought out other treatments in the past that hasn't worked. Um, you, of course, want to rule out the fact that they're acutely suicidal. You really want to, you know, how emergent is this situation? Um, you don't want to treat somebody in an outpatient office who's acutely suicidal and just kick them into an Uber to go home. That's not right. safe. Um, but then you also, you have to get to know your patients. They're human beings. You have to get a feel as to what their real intentions are. Are they serious about this? Do they just want an escape like we discussed before? Are they just looking to score drugs and have a lot of extra money on hand that want to, you know, pay for the most expensive form of it. Um, you know, they, what's their intention? Do they, are they not understanding what the use is for this? Do they just hear that it's good and they don't understand that they have to put work into it? You know, what, what's the likelihood that they're going to get positive outcomes? So that's kind of how you, you weed them out. Um, but the most important thing is first, do no harm. You want to make sure that they don't have any issues that is going to make them worse than they already were when they, they walked in the door. Yeah, I think to, to your point, for me to consider something medicine, there has to be a medical professional between you and the thing. Really? Your shroom okay. dealer doesn't classify as a <laughs> right. as a qualified physician? Yeah, I think a lot of the times people, they mask it that way so they don't feel irresponsible, but they just really want an excuse to do drugs. It's like we were talking about the other day. It's like, I'm not a cocaine addict. I just love the smell. <laughs> but for me, like, do you have any reservations or around pushing this agenda forward and like we kind of we've seen a trend in these things rise up in popularity through different social media outlets and then legislation follows soon after like i never thought in my lifetime growing up that we would see the legalization of marijuana and then within five years right. of the legalization of marijuana right it was it was dc or sorry it was washington state and colorado 
then it's widely decriminalized across most of the United States within five years. And within that five years, beginning the process of legalizing psilocybin. So it seems like the half-life on, you know, government oversight and leniency towards more, uh, you know, what we may have thought as more experimental drugs is turning over quicker and quicker. But just as they gain popularity in clinical setting, they also gain popularity in a recreational setting. Do you have any apprehension about like, you know, talking about this from a clinical standpoint, but also maybe understanding the potential reverberation of recreational use? Like, I guarantee that, and this, not to throw you under the bus for this, but like, I guarantee someone will listen to this and they'll be at a party and someone will be like, it'll be like a new year somewhere. They'll be out in the fucking desert somewhere. And someone will be like, oh, yeah, I got some some purple K or something. And next thing you know, they just K out and see God and they feel good about some realization. And then they come back and then it's medicine again. Like, do you worry about like maybe the other branch that this takes into the recreational field in trying to, you know, your your aim is set at, you know, PTSD things that can't be overcome with just conventional therapy and then but maybe there's another branch to this popularity that might push this legislation across the board that might also increase recreational use yeah that's my main concern is uh you have to get it out there and available but you have to get out there responsibly uh and if you just plaster everywhere advertising and say it's a cure-all it's it's gonna peak really fast and then fizzle out something's gonna backfire um so it, it has great effects, but you don't want bad publicity. K, you know, ketamine, first thing everybody asks is, isn't that a horse tranquilizer? Isn't that a party drug? It already has a bad name, you know, and then it, we people stopped using it for decades since people forgot about it. So now it's slowly creeping back up and we're trying, you know, you have to rebrand it as, hey, this is a real medication again. It's not a veterinarian drug and it's not a party drug. The, there's no way to prevent people from abusing it, which we just have to decrease that as much as possible the other aspect of it is who's going to control this new field and i mentioned before it's a generic medication um, so nobody owns a patent on it but johnson and johnson found a way to start making money off of it Uh, and what they did they have jansen is the johnson johnson brand of of pharmaceutical company and they patented uh, spravato which is just one Uh, one shape of the molecule of ketamine. It comes in two mirror images. Uh, They found a way to isolate just half of that, uh, and they got a patent on it. So they own a new patent on ketamine. It's called Spravato. It's a nasal spray. Um, The goal for getting a patent on it is to get FDA approval, which they got. So for the treatment of depression, ketamine is FDA approved only for the Johnson & Johnson brand. It's a nasal spray because they found a way to isolate half of it. Uh, it's still extremely expensive and they own the monopoly on that. You can get it generic again, but insurance won't cover a generic medication that's off label. So someone can FDA just, someone with depression can just walk around on the street squirting ketamine up their nose? Uh, no, well, it's it's still regulated in, in the sense that you have to go to a doctor's office, has to be prescribed. It's usually an observed nasal spray. They spritz it up your nose and, and then they watch you walk out. You don't get to walk around with it. They do it at the doctor's office. Oh, okay. But some insurances do cover it. Um, it's not very effective from what I could tell. Uh, the nasal route is less than 50% bioavailability versus intravenous route. Um, but Johnson Johnson, again, they own the monopoly on, on prescription ketamine for depression. Um, the other aspect, the same with shrooms, you know, that's going to become more mainstream. It's already available. 
but there are now giant corporations taking over trying now that's becoming legalized they're at the forefront they're not really uh, physicians by any chance they don't really care about the patients but how can we get these new psilocybin clinics opened up as soon as they become legalized they're not they're not available yet but these corporations already set up camp in a lot of places um and back to ketamine there's something called field trip health it's i'm not going to you know call them out but they're a giant corporation they've they're opening up clinics everywhere they're they're not independent physicians practicing so you know the they're gaining control of that and they can control the legislation. It's extremely difficult now to open up a ketamine clinic. It was easy when nobody knew about them. Now it's hard to, to jump through all the hoops of that. The DEA kind of put a squash on any distributors uh, approving ketamine orders for these clinics unless they kind of jump through these needless hoops. So they're, they're, we're kind of already getting that backlash um, because it's so inexpensive and it's a competition with the pharmaceutical industry when it comes to these treatments. Quick shout out to our sponsor, LMNT. Uh, it's a great tasting electrolyte drink mix with everything you need and nothing you don't. That means lots of salt with no sugar. LMNT is formulated to help anyone with their electrolyte needs and is perfectly suited for folks following a keto, low-carb, or paleo diet. LMNT contains a science-backed electrolyte ratio, 1,000 milligrams of sodium, 200 milligrams of potassium, 60 milligrams of magnesium, with no, with none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. If you want to check these guys out, this is something that Stephanie and I use all the time. Uh, check them out at drinklmnt.com hybrid. This podcast episode is also brought to you by Beam. Beam is committed to producing high-quality, natural, innovative wellness products trusted by some of the world's top professional athletes. Beam creates products to support four main categories, balance, performance, recovery, and sleep. These products are combined of both CBD and non-CBD ingredients. By tapping into how we function biologically, CBD can work to regulate pain, mood, appetite, anxiety, and inflammation. As a Hybrid Unlimited listener, you get 15% off your order with code HYBRID in all caps. So check them out. That's BEAM and use code HYBRID in all caps for 15% off. Would you be at all concerned that, you know, maybe as the popularity grows, because we kind of, the last question was more geared towards our recreational drug dealers, but now our our lobbyist drug dealers, you mentioned Johnson & Johnson, would you be at all concerned that if the bottom line is maybe the bottom line financially that at some point, you know, these infusion clinics can be allowed to, you know, under stricter regulations pop up. Would you be at all concerned that if the bottom line is ultimately this drug and that a physical clinic is maybe bottlenecked in its ability to administer this drug, that then prescription ketamine over the, not maybe not over the counter, but prescription ketamine post or like inter infusion in between infusions then might be prescribed just as a means of pushing more ketamine and pushing more profit? Uh, I hope it doesn't go there. Um, I, I, I don't think it will because, again, it, it's hopefully a re- relatively temporary treatment. You might need some booster infusions or booster doses in the future. But, again, it's, it's meant to change your entire outlook on life and change things long term. So it, there's no it's not a daily pill like a Zoloft or any other antidepressants so it i'm hoping it doesn't become so mainstream that people are lining up at these, these kind of getting their prescription filled and popping these all the time so it shouldn't be a long-term treatment 
that's always a, a worry though that it is gets in the wrong hands and it's all about money how we can make it available for profit versus actual beneficial outcome of it i hope it doesn't go that way though um for for just switch gears a little bit for me yeah. it's hard for me to wrap my head around some uh like a drug especially one with this sort of like cognitive impact being healthy right like when i think of drugs i associate guilt like you drink alcohol kills brain cells like that's how i've always been like we've learned our entire lives growing up in school say no to drugs all that stuff right they really nail that into you so i'm curious you already talked about a little bit of the exclusionary criteria for, for people, you know, and most of it is if they have underlying issues or previous issues or, you know, psychosis or all these different things. But if you're a well-adjusted person with a great life, you're happy and you're coming into this, this clinic, is there a physical or mental negative side to the use of this drug? It's it can be a very scary experience. You have to be again. You have to be prepared. You have to have an intention. You have to understand that it's going. You might fight through some demons during this time that you may have not known you had. So it's not always a happy euphoria. You do get the somewhat euphoric state in, in terms of you feel kind of disconnected from your body somewhat, and you just feel like a, a load is lifted off you. But if you've got these underlying demons. It, it may not always be a pleasant experience. They have, you know, have bad trips like anybody else. At, at even low dose, you just feel unwell. There is a little bit of nausea, a little bit of headache that some people feel. So it's not always perfect, and we we try to decrease those side effects. Um, but again, it, I think we're far away from somebody who's happy and healthy taking this medication. Um, with you, you have the way the benefits and the, and the risks involved and the downside. So if you have no reason to take it, if you might have some negative effects and kind of you're worse off at least temporarily than if you just enjoy the rest of your day and go for a walk. Um, but in the future, like I said, it might be an enhancement medication where you do have a good, happy life, but you want to expand a little more. You want to help this neuroplasticity. Again, we can go into the neuroscience a little, um, but it might help you learn things. You, your brain kind of gets stuck in place as you age. When you're a child, if you're flexible, you can learn new things. You know, the, the research and science is going where this might help increase neuroplasticity. If you want to pick up a new language, this will help. It's, you're not going to wake up like the Matrix and know Kung Fu, but it, it'll help you retain some of the stuff. It'll help your brain mold. That's the whole, that's what plasticity means. You can remold stuff and pick up new tricks. That might be the future, kind of just a recreational enhancement during aging. So that, that's a potential. Now, I, I know you're not a, a shaman and that you're a, a, prof a, a professional. Um, and I know we're drawing a lot of comparisons between other drugs that we've either had, you know, a few degrees yeah. of removal of experience with. But I, I, I kind of, for some reason, at least feel like they're along the same vein in, in you're trying to achieve ego death and like Absolutely. all those things. So, I mean, I talk to people who talk about ayahuasca as, and, mm. you know, or taking large amounts of mushrooms or whatever. Um, and achieving that ego death and then um, having that completely new outlook on life. And my question has always been like, is that always a good thing? You know, like, let's say I, I work on Wall Street, I'm making millions of dollars, I go on this ayahuasca retreat and I have this new outlook on life, I decide everything's pointless and now I just wanna wear ponchos and, and hang out in the woods, you know? It's like, okay, like your brain has switched to a different line of what you care about, but is that, like, is there a risk for that? Like, is it always a positive switch? Uh, well, it, 
it's a subjective thing, I guess. What's positive? Maybe that person's happy wearing the poncho. It may not be good for society if, if we have nobody who wants to be strong producers and everybody wants to run out into the woods barefoot. But for that person, it might be what's positive for them. Maybe their, their life wasn't as happy as they thought. And that, you know, their ego deaths point them in a direction where that Wall Street life wasn't really for them or they're just tired of it. It's hard to say, hard to judge what's positive and negative for somebody as long as they're not harming themselves. If their change in life uh, is something they decide, I don't know if I can judge whether or not that's a positive thing or say it's a negative thing for them to give up, you know, what they have. From the outside, it may not, you know, people who want that life and they see someone giving it up, it, it may not be positive. There's always a chance. It, it really depends on what molded them up into that point and what life decisions and experiences that they've had. Uh, and maybe that kind of strive for perfection and advancement was a defense mechanism from something they had and they gave that up and now they don't feel like they have to keep pushing so hard. I'm not sure. That might be a possibility. If you were to like sit down with a lawmaker and plead an anecdotal case, because like it's it's fun for us to ask the questions about our like our, our ridiculous friends who lick toads and shit and <laughs> pretend to be woke for three days, tell you all about it, like, oh you gotta do this thing and go to Sedona and get real high and run around and put paint on your face. All this bullshit. And it's like, like I got a fucking job, man. Like I can't, I can't be doing this all the time, <laughs> but I like, I, I want to get a, back to where maybe like more clinical importance. And like, so if you were to sit down with a lawmaker and talk about an anecdotal case in your practice of like, look, we know unequivocally that ketamine infused treatment therapy has changed this person's life from the better, whether it's PTSD, depression, and obviously, like HIPAA violations, like you don't need to use names or anything. But cases of otherwise untreatable, like what is what is your starting lineup? What is your what is your closer anecdotal case of like, look, here's a patient we had that nothing else worked. They tried X, Y, and Z, and then all of a sudden, the ketamine treatment was it. Like, what is your go-to uh, like professional anecdotal experience to maybe shine a more positive light away from our our dumb drug addict friends? <laughs> yeah, I, I ironically I would think one of one of the, the best anecdotal things has isn't depression or anxiety related, but is actually pain control related. Um, because we do want to avoid opioids. There's that epidemic there that we really want to fight. Um, when I was doing spine surgeries as an anesthesiologist, I was doing the anesthesia for it, we would do these seven, eight hour cases where they would just put metal rods all the way up their back from, from neck to butt. Um, and they get infusions of all sorts of medications for that seven, eight hours to keep them asleep and comfortable and pain-free and one of them is a narcotic and you give them a very quick acting narcotic but a continuous infusion for for seven or eight hours um, and that was found to have a rebound hyperalgesia what that means is when you stop it they have extreme pain even if they're not uh, having pain just removing that narcotic infusion that would give them a lot of pain temporarily but they have this pain more than if they just didn't get the narcotic uh, so when I first started uh, in my town here, I, I had trained giving ketamine infusions for these long spine cases in the hospital I worked, just started working, didn't do that. Um, so I gave a ketamine infusion to one of these long cases um, without permission, but I don't need permission. Um, but I gave the infusion, I didn't tell anybody, and the patient went to the recovery room and you know was waking up. And I had another case to do, unfortunately, so I started my next case, uh, another long spine case, and I got a phone call from the recovery room from the nurse who was very frantic uh, and saying, there's something wrong with the first patient. I said, oh boy, you know, I 
did this ketamine infusion, which nobody, they weren't doing before. And now I, you know, I'm this, the end, one of my first days on this job and it's probably my last day. I said, <laughs> what's wrong? I'm stuck in the operating room here, but what's wrong? I said, well, the patient wants to go up to the floor because they, they have to stay a couple nights and they're still in the recovery room. They want to go to their room in the, up in the floor already uh, in the hospital. I said, okay, so what's the problem? I said, well, we haven't given them any pain medication yet. I said, so what's the problem? I said, well, he's, he's just awake and looking around the room and he's saying he's hungry and he wants to go up to his room and spend the rest of the night there. And I kept asking, what's the problem? He said, and she kept saying, we haven't given pain medication yet. We can't send him up to his room. I said, is the patient in pain? And she said, no. I said, so why would you give him pain medication? She said, because we always do. These these surgeries are very painful. And I said, I don't understand. If he's not asking for pain medication, he's asking for food, give him his dinner and send him up to his room. And she was so worried because she said, if I send him up to the room without pain medication, I'm going to get in trouble. And I said, do not give him any pain medication. He says he's not in any pain. I gave him a ketamine. That's when I spilled the beans. Said I gave him a ketamine infusion, you know, during the procedure. That's how I was trained to do it. And from that day on, all of our spawn cases were done with these ketamine infusions. And the narcotic use went almost to zero. Um, from these huge, I mean, they're, they're going to have a scar all the way up and down their back. All those metal rods went to almost zero post-op. So that the risk of, you know, opioid addiction and all this chronic pain drops dramatically. So not not only that, but the expense, there's a lot of side effects from opioids. There's constipation, which, you know, sounds funny, but this costs a lot of money in the hospital treating constipation. Um, there's nausea, vomiting, allergic reaction, itching. Uh, constipation keeps people in the hospital for extra days. If they're not pooping, you can't let them go home. Uh, and it sounds funny, but that costs a lot of money for a hospital to keep a patient two or three extra days just because they can't use the bathroom because they're taking so much morphine. Um, so that alone saved the hospital a lot of money. It might have changed the course of these patients' lives who would otherwise be on these very strong pain medications from this back surgery uh, almost, and down to almost zero pain medication. So I would, I would kind of tell that story. It scared me the first day because, again, I thought I was going to be fired. <laughs> nurse called me frantically, but but that was kind of a, an eye opener for me because I had always been I had always trained using these ketamine infusions on these big surgeries, so I didn't know what it was like to not use them. Um, so to see the reaction from people who had always gotten patients in severe pain to now getting a patient who didn't have pain from this big surgery was an eye opener for me uh, to see how beneficial it was because I never saw patients not getting it. So I couldn't tell how effective it was. So, I mean, out of my own personal professional curiosity, because I'm a chiropractor by trade, so I've dealt with a lot of post-operative laminoplasties, laminectomies, discectomies, you name it, Harrington rods, whatever weird scoliosis, medieval shit goes on. And in your professional experience, towing this line maybe closer to your day-to-day practice, how widely accepted by your colleagues and contemporaries is ketamine infusions like let's say of all the ketamine or of all the spine surgeries that happen in the U.S. daily, what percentage are doing infused with ketamine? What percentage is it? I it's it's tough to say nationally, but it's actually very well accepted. Uh, and again, I think it's part of the social aspect of it. If the patient's asleep and nobody knows what the patient's getting, unless you look at the record, it's much easier to administer ketamine without judgment. Uh, it's different from outpatient where the patient comes in specifically for ketamine. When the patient comes in for a back surgery, they don't ask what medications they're getting. They just know they're going to be asleep and wake up. So it's actually very common, especially in, in more current and academic settings. It's kind of the standard of care for a lot of these bigger surgeries. I just happen to 
started in a smaller hospital that was a little behind on the times. And I, I caught them up pretty quick. But I think it's accepted, again, when nobody's really asking what the patient's getting, it's easier to give these medications to them. Um, when it's broadcasted, if we put a billboard saying, hey, you're going to get ketamine for your back surgery, I think that would be a huge you know, backlash and probably uh, a pushback against it. But I, I think, again, if, if nobody knows, nobody knows without looking at the record what the patient's getting, they don't really care as long as the outcome's good. So it's kind of it's a social aspect of it, I, I would say. Would you say the biggest proponents for ketamine outside, like outside back surgeries for it, like further therapeutic use around managing pain, whether it be physical or um, maybe more like psychological? Would you say that the biggest promote proponents are people of your specific designation who have seen the ability for this drug to work day in, day out, its safety, its efficacy? Like are other pain management doctors the other ones like towing the front lines of this movement to normalize ketamine use in a maybe an alternative therapeutic setting um i would say you know follow the money and i unfortunately it's not covered by insurance and nobody really who's making the money already as a pain management doctor doing injections and you know they don't want to be wasting their time being the four runners and, and pushing this they'd rather just give the injection get insurance to cover it get their money um so there's there's not as much incentive unless they're being altruistic there's not incentive for them to have a more effective treatment but doesn't pay them as much they'd rather and i'm not judging a whole specialty but you know there is incentive for somebody to come back every six months for an injection uh who still has a complaint who still has pain and you can bill insurance for a treatment rather than the incentive to treat somebody and say, hey, you don't have to come back unless you want to, you know, take, see how it is, and, you know, give me $500 cash and we'll call it even. You know, I, some people would rather put a neurostimulator in and get $6,000 back. So it's, it, it's tough to say, you know, I can't say all these people are bad or good, but if you look, you can take a step back and look at the incentive, it, it would not be to push this type of treatment because uh, you you're not, nobody, unless you're a corporation, is going to become very rich off of this. Um, it takes a lot of, ind you know, individual care for these patients. The infusions are about an hour each. The going rate is between 400 to $600 for an infusion, which sounds like a lot. Um, but you got to pay your staff. you got to pay for insurance. you got to pay everything. To, what you take home is, you know, very little per hour when you could be working in the hospital and just doing general anesthesia or general pain medicine and making several hundred dollars per hour. So the incentive is not to be rich off of this. And that's kind of one of the deterrents for the physicians who are pushing it. Yeah, You have the altruistic movements. Yeah. Dish out like Norco and Norco and Gabapentin, make your money, buy your boat, put your house on the water, that kind right. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and there are pain management doctors and this is, you know, anecdotal, but they'll have a stack of pre-filled prescriptions and they'll have a stack of gabapentin, a stack of this, and they'll, then they'll just write your name on it. You walk in, they'll see you for 35 seconds and, and bill the insurance company for a half hour visit. Mm -hmm. And they can get, they can see 50 patients a day that way. 50 patients times half an hour is, is much more than one day, but they squeeze that into 24 hours somehow billing wise. So oh, you see that in the incentive. You know a lot of fields too. I remember in university, how many kids were selling Adderall just cause it was just like over prescribed. You, some kid would go in and say, I have 80. It's like that South park episode. They get them to read the entire book and they're like, what happened on page one or page 80 paragraph, whatever. No one knows. They're like, ah, you all have ADHD and they're just throwing out pills. But yeah, I think that over prescription happens 
a lot in every field. Yeah, yeah it's actually so, you know, Adderall Ritalin is a good example of, of a social medication too, where uh, depends on where you are in society is whether or not how you see Ritalin or Adderall. There are lower socioeconomic people look at Ritalin and say, I don't want you putting my kids on these drugs. It's, you know, it's bad. You're just trying to dope up my child. And then the higher socioeconomic class will say, hey, I want my child to have an advantage over other people, put them on Ritalin so they can study more. It's the same medication, same outcome, but some some parts of society love the medication, want their kids on it. Other parts say, no, leave my kid alone. It's the same with the, any new treatment or any treatment that will change you. It's finding the right patients, right clientele. There are people who don't mind getting an injection, don't mind whatever insurance will cover uh, to treat their illness. And then there's other patients say, I want something that works. I don't care how much it costs. I don't care if insurance will pay for it. It's, there's a lot of battles to fight in terms of making this mainstream. Uh, and the incentive is a little backwards. So you, you kind of just have to hope it works out. Do you ever think about, you know, if the goal was to ultimately just get it more mainstream, that the if we look at the trend of what it takes for a drug to become more mainstream, regardless of the negative effects, like, you know, fentanyl is one that comes to mind. Oxycontin is one that comes to mind. It's like, is the Johnson and Johnson, you know, strain different chirality, whatever it is, the patent they have, the, the likely route in the way this goes down, like just understanding how like med legal lobbyists sort of work that it's like, all right, J&J is going to be expensive, but maybe that's exactly what we need to put the billables at a point where practitioners will start paying attention to this rather than like, you know, the generic like one dollar per dose is basically the exact same thing, the exact same outcome. The only difference is the income, right? Like in, in all like all things equal in your experience and how this stuff actually goes down. Do you think that the big pharma route to incentivize the practitioner to veer the attention towards this is likely how this starts to become viable. Yeah, it's, it's tough because, you know, I, I think the way that Johnson Johnson's benefit is benefiting from it is they are the only game in town in terms of FDA approval. Um, and we can give up and say here, just take it. It's yours, but at least make it available to the people. Um, it's, it would be hard to trust them on doing that and doing it at an affordable rate. Uh, and the other aspect of it is they already have plenty of uh, medications that they're making a lot of money off of that are competitors of ketamine. They work a lot less effective, uh, and the patients need a lot more of it, so they make a lot more money on that. So if you give them control, they might just put it on the back shelf again and, and shut it down, and then nobody has access to it. So it's, you, you have to trust a pharmaceutical company. I don't know if I'd be willing to do that in terms of their morals and making it available. Uh, I would, you know, ideally it would, it would be the continued mom and pop, you know, independent physicians opening up their own clinics and making a national standard. There are a few uh, uh, societies of ketamine prescribing uh, prescribers that are forming and they're kind of, they have their own conventions and everything. So they try to standardize it so that when you do open up, you can kind of go with how they do it. That would be my ideal route is just have, more independence, more freedom, but have a kind of national consensus of how to go about it and treat patients so that there's no cowboys doing their own thing and, and sending people to the K-hole for fun and ruining it for everybody. What do you see as a realistic timeline for that? Well, it's, it's kind of funny because ketamine has been around for 50 years. We've been doing research for 20 plus years when it regained its, its popularity. And then psilocybin and mushrooms came out of nowhere 
and they're actually taking the lead. So I, I don't know what the timeline is because if they start legalizing microdosing shrooms, that might put the squash and ketamine all together because it's much more accessible. Uh, you don't need to go to a clinic and get an infusion for it and probably get a lot less expensive. So that might kind of squash the timeline on ketamine infusions and, and take the lead. And that looks like it's happening pretty rapidly in terms of legalization and recreational use. Uh, I'm not going to poo-poo the benefit of recreational use in terms of making it socially acceptable. Uh, I'm not promoting recreational use either. But if people are using it and not you know, lighting the cities on fire and going crazy, then it might make it more, more mainstream and more acceptable for society to just say, hey, it ain't so bad. Maybe we should allow it for medical use more often also. So that might be the route. We just kind of have to let people use it at their own discretion and hopefully they use it responsibly and that'll, that might promote it faster um, under standard conditions in the future. Are there countries so, yeah. that do a better job than this than, than Western countries, Canada and the United States? Like I know with just different stigmas around drug use and you know, like Portugal, all drugs are legal. Like how much does you know, the, the confines of our legal system in Canada, the United States, the influx of influence of big pharmaceutical companies and lobbyists in Washington, especially how much of a factor do you think that plays? And will we get beat to the beaten to the punch by someone overseas, perhaps in like Europe or something like that? Yeah, it's, uh, you know, the countries that legalize everything or decriminalize everything, it, they also par partially take out the incentive for clinicians to use it because then you're not offering you're just offering the service of your guidance. You're not offering the product itself, uh, and that decreases because it's available. It's legal. So you're just offering your, your insight, and that might decrease the incentive. I'm not going to make money just showing you how to use it because you're going to get it on your own anyway. Um, so part of the benefit of having this, the DEA regulate these medications and only allowing physicians, certain physicians to prescribe it is that we are incentivized because we're the you know experts in it. We're incentivized to be the ones to promote it. Um, it's a, it's a balance like anything else. If you're too strict on the regulations, then nobody has access. And if everybody has access, then nobody's going to put the energy into being the, the leaders of it and helping, I guess, uh, you know, they're not going to be famous if everybody has access to it. They're not going to be the ones to be in charge and, and show people how to use it correctly because you're not going to make money off of that if they can just get it on their own and not care how to, to do it. Um, Canada, on the other hand, you know, they're, they, I think, have been one of the big pushes towards uh, the the responsible use of shrooms um, for severe depression. They kind of took it on their own and and they have these uh, retreats and and guided uh, trips, I guess. Uh, and they're, they're kind of doing it how I said, they're doing it recreationally, but with a purpose and intent and they're doing it responsibly. And that has been shown, that has shown society that, hey, they can do it and people are getting positive effects. And it's not from the pharmaceutical companies prescribing, it's not from clinicians um, directing them how to do it, you know, therapists are helping in some positions, but it's from their personal use and their personal experiences, their anecdotal experiences, and it's been okay. No, nothing negative has happened, and that's actually been very beneficial in, in kind of normalizing it. it so it's an I, interesting I Canada. Yeah, it's an interesting line to walk because, on the one hand, thinking like a consumer, I'd rather have cheap access to whatever I want. But then thinking like someone who actually has a problem or underlying demons that I'm trying to work through. I think I'd feel a lot more comfortable having to go through a professional and be guided through that experience. Like if the alternative is take a bunch of mushrooms and lie in my bed and freak out about all the stuff I should be doing that I'm not doing <laughs> versus, you know, going to someone like yourself who can guide me through it. Like that, that feels like a much, uh, 
like a much safer place to be, I guess. If that makes sense. Yeah, I just feel yeah, terrible I, for him because like every question we've asked, there's been like a there's like there's the optimism and the realism seem to clash, right? Well, but like, it's good though because well, I'm you know we're asking the questions to we're trying to find like what's the the bad part of this drug basically, right? And so far we we haven't really found it. So like people, people are the bad part of the people drug, are right? yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah like people and money yeah, are I, the worst parts of this drug. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's not an ideal drug, and again, it doesn't work for everybody. It's but it's a very useful tool to have, uh, and it's it, I think it amplifies and augments therapy and that's again it's changing your lifestyle changing your your outlook and your intention in life uh it's very kind of a, a very buddhist outlook you really have to work look within yourself to fix it but this helps you because i think there are actual obstacles to people you can't just wake up one morning and say i'm going to be happy that's good for you know inspirational quotes and just change your outlook but some people it's really just not physically possible if you're in chronic pain it's not realistic to say i'm going to change my outlook on life or if you've had a very traumatic experience in life, you can't just say, today's the day. It sounds good, but it's not realistic without some help. And this is one of the, the possible ways to help is taking these psychedelics. Um, so you're telling me you know, David Goggins might be wrong? As he run, calls <laughs> me a bitch, as he runs down the side of the road with a car driving next to him? It's nice to have this conversation with someone wearing scrubs. Because most of the times, it's it's my bullshit friends. But <laughs> they're just like, yeah, no, bro, definitely medicine. So, I mean, I, I feel bad if that, I don't know if that's the right way like you're out you're fighting a seemingly impossible fight because it's like you're trying to navigate church and state almost right because of like the spear which has been the you know as as long as there's been religion there's been battles between these two things so like to be able to dive in and have at least even the acknowledgement of the spiritual undertones and like the emotional tied back into the very cold clinical and medical and the ability to like dose and titrate and and control the substance it seems to pose a very unique set of challenges with this drug more than anything else because it does it does tow the more clinical line in administration and dose and manufacturing like you're not just going to go out into the woods stumble across it be high for eight hours Right. And it's right. so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's an interesting hill that you've chosen to to jam a flag into and claim because right. That face <laughs> right there. dude. <laughs> oh, and it's just I don't know. I, I'm interested to see how this unfolds, because, you know, we've seen. You made a comment about it's not the per, it's not a perfect drug. It's not for everyone. But I think that statement right there, like I have friends use the term loosely that are like. Napra paths or natural like like yo I'm a chiropractor I'm the fakest fucking doctor in the world but these motherfuckers are working on a whole nother level of bullshit it's like that is the perfect drug the perfect drug is the one that doesn't work for everyone because it's the drug that when it works for someone it really works right like how much fucking coq10 and turmeric can a guy take before I realize that maybe this isn't doing anything right and my napropath aunt is just a fucking trumped up drug dealer that works for GNC, right? Where on this side, yeah. it's like, you know, it seems to have that that exclusion criteria if you can tow that line properly. Like it seems to be like a, a much more sure shot in, in efficacy and effectiveness. For sure. Yeah, I, and I, I for, uh, to go along that, one of the, the worries I had and luckily kind of calmed down a little bit is I didn't want psychedelics, especially ketamine, to go the route of CBD oil. 
which may have some benefits, but then they started putting in everything and it was the cure all and they advertise it because it's available and you can get CBD and everything. And no matter what your ailment was, it's going to fix it. And it, in the beginning, they started to look at ketamine that way. And there was research on everything. They used it for COVID. It actually did help treat COVID, but that's another issue. Uh, but they started using it to treat everything and see what the effects were instead of just focusing on what we did see benefit from. And then later on, looking at these other treatments, it started to go everywhere. And it started to look like snake oil, even though we're having an effect. If you start to make too many claims, like you're going to learn a new language, like I mentioned earlier, <laughs> then people start to have disbelief from it. Um, so luckily, you know, I'm, I try to be a realist. It's not perfect. Even with its intended use for what we know now, it's not going to cure anybody. It's going to hopefully at best give them the tools for them to change their life and outside or lifestyle and outlook to improve themselves. Some people may get positive, you know, almost a cure and have very tolerable life and happy life, but it's not meant to do that. It's just meant to allow you to, to have your own tools to grow. Uh, so you have to be realistic or else it, it becomes a fake, you know, medication becomes snake oil. And nobody's going to believe it at all. Even if the real things that do work. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I've been intrigued with the whole thing ever since we had that uh, brief conversation at uh, FitCon Dallas. Yeah. So I'm glad we uh, got to unpack it a lot. You know, I'm a big skeptic with a lot of these things. Um, so friends are retards. That's why. That's why. <laughs> but I, yeah, no, it, it is nice to talk to somebody who's a professional who can bring a clinical approach to the whole thing. And uh, I hope a lot of people who are out there, you know, doing ayahuasca in the desert, trying to find themselves, listen to this podcast and maybe find a, a better route for it. So yeah. I think you're fighting, you're fighting a good fight. Yeah. I think just Thank to you. hear Appreciate someone it. of your, your pedigree talk about the importance of the underlying work outside of the drugs is something that is never, is, is just a voice and a message you don't hear, right? Like, you know, you have people who thinks the drugs do all the work, which might be more towards our circle of friends. And then you have the people who think that, you know, almost the drugs do all the work in your field that you just give them the drugs and that's how, right. that's how it works. So it's like, and that's the, you're in this, this lotus leaf of morality to use kind of a Buddha reference right. from before trying to illuminate, you know, either sides of the, either sides of the aisle. So it is the good, it is the good fight because I think the underlying message is something that is unequivocal, right? It's, it's, you can't, you can't go against the work that requires to make the changes that you're looking for, that the drug is just going to help. And that's always been a, that's been a theme throughout this whole thing, which is refreshing on either sides of big pharma <laughs> and recreational use. Yeah, I, and I just noticed that Anthony Bourdain uh, picture in the background there, and it, you know that that kind of sparks how it affects everybody. This, you know, we have mental illness, we have chronic conditions. Everybody has some effect from it, even if you do have a great life. Uh, and even all ketamine aside and all psychedelic aside, the the answer is there. You really have to work on yourself and your outlook, whether or not you need this extra medication or not, uh, because there's there's no perfect cure, and it's it is a daily thing. You may have a great life for weeks and days and years and something bad might happen you have to get the tools to be able to handle that and that works within yourself and you, and you don't it's not only within yourself which is why we have these medications upcoming available um, and if you need them you ask for help and they're i'm not sponsoring any particular ketamine clinic or, or any type of therapy but every state now has in the united states now has ketamine clinics so go find one and look into it i'm not even pushing definitely using it but go look into it if you're interested in it uh, and see what's available locally. There's just some in every state now, which is good. 
I think that's very uh, responsibly and succinctly said. So I appreciate that. And next time, uh, or when your when your clinic does open, we should have you on the podcast and talk about that too. Yeah, sounds great. Awesome, I appreciate man. It. Thank you for your time, and uh, catch See you again you. soon. So appreciate it, man.